Warface. I'm Philip Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. In this episode, I speak with Benjamin Ludmel. Ben is Norwegian-American with a curiosity for life and the world that took him on a journey that is the stuff of novels or poetry of which he is a prolific writer. Ben lives in Portugal with his wife and five children. It's the place he calls home after a globe-trotting life across continents. Ben is an independent advisor for family offices by trade. After a successful banking career and a brief run for Congress, he set up his company's charity activities focusing on education in Africa with the capacity to deliver services actually on the ground. No bio could do justice to Ben's incredible life, so I won't try more. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing? Great to see you. Great to see you. Maybe one one place we could start is no. maybe I'd like to kind of bring you all the way back to uh, your, your childhood uh-huh. uh, and and growing up, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, in, in Alabama. And if 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 you can share a little bit, how was your family environment? What it was like? What were you discussing at the dinner table? Like, yeah, what was going on around Absolutely. you at that time? So I I don't know Alabama. I had I think in GMAP I had one friend from Alabama with a thick accent. I have a yeah. very stereotypical view of what that is. So which is you know true for everybody. Um, and uh, you know I just was listening to an interview on um, Fresh Air of a an intellectual named Imani Perry. I think was her name. And she's it's uh, the book she just wrote was called South to America, and it was really a, a kind of a reframing of what the American South is, um, how the American South has really taught America how it understands itself, especially with respect to, to race relations, and yeah. uh, it's just a great perspective because I re- it resonated a lot with me simply because you know even though I was born in Arizona and and I was uh, you know in a military family my stepfather was a an Air Force uh, lieutenant colonel so we were on Beale Air Force Base in the 70s um, then SAC headquarters and when he retired I was 11 years old and that's when we moved to Alabama mm-hmm. so that's pretty young you know I spent middle school and high school there um, there was really a couple of there was three worlds, to be honest with you. There was the world of traditional Alabama that had been there forever, uh, yeah. which was really divided into two groups, uh, to be honest. I mean, you were either white or black. And yeah. then there was this little group of uh, technocrats that, you know, their fathers were military men mm-hmm. that uh, or women that came to, you know, work in the defense contracting industry or at the Redstone Arsenal. Uh, yeah. the military base there. So, you know, military was always a really big part of, of um, everything um, because it's it's actually a very big part of, of the culture in Alabama. I, I would say that uh, I, I just can't share how many people um, have served and a lot of them as combatants in theaters of war. And it was just something that was part of everyone's um, past and, and the culture. Um, 
and guns, of course. Guns mm -hmm. was a huge part of just life um, uh, growing up there. Uh, one of the first poems I wrote 20 years ago was kind of a long, epic rant called Guns. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it just—it's just guns, guns, guns everywhere. You know, never met no one who didn't have one. I mean, it's in—it's in Alabama vernacular, which um, you know, interestingly, when I when I moved there, I quickly learned that I needed to learn how to speak uh, like a local. Um, and so, you know, I I I can now speak uh, neutral uh, American English, uh, and then I I can speak with an Alabama dialect. Um, like, I can't even say the word Alabama without saying it in the local dialect. You know, it just doesn't sound right. <laughs> but, you know, it was, uh, it was incredible um, because, you know, here I was kind of commuting between different lives in the United States. I mean, you know, since I had two families, I would go spend holidays with my dad. But, you know, since I was with my stepfather and mom since I was seven, that was really where I lived my, my years, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, so if you can imagine, I mean, one minute you're, you know, dad was kind of a less than cutthroat lawyer, you know, uh, uh, you know, a bit of a, of a leftist, you know, uh, in, in the hills of, of northern Arizona, you know, just a totally different world. Yeah. And then, you know, imagine next minute you're on a military base in a military school and then suddenly you're in Alabama growing up. And, you know, it was just a, a really, it gave me this huge snapshot, you know, going back to my stepfather's um, tobacco farm and it's a very big uh, southern family you know, for Christmas. And I was just constantly thrown into completely different uh, cultures, environments, uh, socioeconomic stuff. Um, you know, when I was, I, I got cut from the basketball team the first year. And I, you know, I was like a lot of children. I dreamed I was going to be a professional ball player. And, and I got cut. Um, I couldn't even make the squad. And, uh, you know, I quickly realized that there was a lot of kids that had been spending their entire lives since they could walk uh, in the Scruggs Community Center in the local housing project called Council Court. And you would go down there and, I mean, it was like world-class basketball yeah, yeah. in a public uh, community center. So I would start going down there and, you know, I didn't have any sensing that it was inappropriate. Um, but I was always the only white kid there, you know. Mm -hmm. And this is where I would go every day after school. And uh, definitely taught me how to play basketball. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have the talent. I had the size and the strength, but I didn't have the talent to, to, go, to go to the highest levels. But, you know, it was a, a huge experience. I don't think, uh, you know, by the time I was, say, a sophomore at Huntsville High School, um, you know, I think I began to realize the degree that um, being so open um, to such different worlds... Yeah, yeah. had really I mean I could only become a poet you, you know it's 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 <laughs> I just had seen too much you know and so, to so think it sounds like the way you're describing it like your your exposure to basketball in a all black uh community is that you, you were the only white uh guy because no other white person would ever had the idea of mingling in that space or pretty much yeah it was yeah. just considered something that well why in the world would you ever go there you know yeah. and um And then, you know, sometimes I would just stay the night, you know, yeah. uh, it's a Sunday, you, you play till late. Um, 
your buddy's mom's cooking and then you just you know you you just don't go home and you know you fall asleep on the couch and you get up and you walk with a group of kids and you know it was like a uh they would stop at each door and knock on the door and all of a sudden you have a pack of kids walking on their way to Huntsville High School wow and yeah. you know the the part that was so shocking is is you know I just remember the way people looked at us um and they didn't see me in the middle of the group you know at a stoplight or something. And, uh, you know, that experience of going, wow, this is what it feels like, it really shook me. Um, and so, you know, that's that was a base that I came from. As so tell, sudden, me, tell you know, me more. Tell, tell, tell me more. Like, what, what do you mean? Well, I just to watch, you know, I mean, it's it's as cliched as it sounds. It's like, you know, walking into the elevator and the, the, the lady holds your bag or purse close. I mean, you know, watching someone at a stoplight, they can't run the stoplight, so they roll their windows up and lock the doors. And, you know, you watch this, this lady in her car just freak out with, with fear, you know. And so, uh, you know, these are things that unless you were in the middle of that group of kids, you know, boys, um, and 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 sensed it, you know, literally saw it with your own eyes. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah. And uh, you know, but these are things that you know you have to be careful communicating about because you know there's a lot of misunderstandings, especially yeah. when someone like me talks about it. You know, this yeah. Yeah. big blonde Norwegian American guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like this kind of jumping between two such different worlds. It really started shaping you and, and giving you a total different. It didn't sound like it was cutting you off. It was just, uh, somehow you, no, you became really part of both. Yeah. Absolutely, and and not only that, I got to mention there was you know within the white community there was huge socioeconomic uh, differences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the there was a you know a crowd. It was it, it very traditional. I mean you know debutante balls and I mean just you know the prom and who was with whom and I mean it was definitely not some loose, you know, middle-class environment like in Arizona where no one knew anybody, no one knew each other's yeah. neighbors. And, uh, you know, it was very clear who you were, where you came from. It was this little microcosm of, I don't know, let's just say 5,000 families that circled the, the high school. Yeah. Yeah. And everything in the world was in it. And, you know, this is what it, it's... When you gr- grow up in that environment, you start to understand, you know, William Faulkner, for example. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Uh, and everyone is so authentic. Now you got to remember, this was thirty-five years ago, you know, forty years ago. Um, but I just saw personalities that you couldn't make these folks up. I mean, you would have to have met them. Um, people's uncles, their grandparents. You know, um, someone stops by your house. You know, we didn't have cell phones. You jump in their truck. You go out to their granddaddy's farm in Coleman, Alabama, and you know, you spend the day shooting guns and. Yeah, then you sit by the fire and, you know, these were people that you couldn't even understand their accents. They were so strong, you know. And uh, I don't know, it was just these these huge, bigger-than-life personalities were everywhere. And, you know, no one was sort of um, uh, being inauthentic. Now, maybe the authenticity that you were seeing, especially by today's standards, you'd look at it and go, wow, these people were awful. You know, <laughs> but, you know, they, at least they weren't fake. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and did these, all these super powerful images 
is that is that when you started wanting to put words behind them, write poetry? Did that come a little? Was that kind of more building kind of a, a repertoire experience? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because uh, you know I went to Connecticut College. Um, I was a basketball player, and here all of a sudden I was in this environment where I realized how uh, like middle class, you know, uh, military. Uh, background and and you know how i was viewed with a when i would say y'all or alabama or something you know judged uh mis, misunderstood i mean the irony is is you know you would these you know boston brahmins you know would assume i was a racist and ignorant and um you know it was just a uh this shock where all of a sudden you're in uh you know, Connecticut College is a very prestigious little private liberal arts school. Mm-hmm. It was Connecticut's college for women until 1971. And so a lot of the, you know, really old third generation dynasty, I mean, you know, if you were, a, a, you know, a Rockefeller, um, you know, you'd send your your daughter to Connecticut College, you know, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it, it was really a, a shocking change for me. Um, and I had to work triple time in order to catch up, you know, which I did. I mean, I didn't quite, I didn't know what a thesis statement was, you know. These kids had already spoke three or four languages and, you know, spent their summers doing tennis classes in, you know, Lausanne or something. And I, you know, I was trying to, to catch up, um, and I did, you know. So, uh, and of course, I spent my junior year abroad in Spain, which was huge. Tell me, how, how did it feel like? You'd been already straddling two totally different worlds. And suddenly well, you, three you, or four, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> you true, know. actually. And then you're into that. I, I think the, the, the environment at Connecticut College it was one that was totally new to you. I mean, the, the oh, way yeah. people spoke, uh, the way they... Well, I didn't know what a trust fund was, you know. I... You know, I, <laughs> I, I so, so how did it make you feel like? Because it, it sounds like it, it, the, the way you were treated was it was uh, you're an outsider, you're an outcast. You're well, in the or... beginning, I mean, yeah. you know, this is again, I mean, you had to adapt. The irony is, you know, I started changing my accent back, <laughs> you know, um, and it's not like I ever had a really strong uh, native Alabama accent, but just little tiny things you say would trigger people, you know. Um, and so, yeah. You know, it was a very nurturing environment. I mean, I adapted and, th- and thrived in it. Um, I wasn't all that social, um, you know, but uh, I really thrived. I mean, it, it was the, I always say it was the first time I ever fell in love. It was with, uh, with, with knowledge, with, with right. learning. Yeah. Yeah. To become passionate about learning and have the time to do nothing but learn. Yeah. Um, I realized what a privilege it was at 18. It wasn't like I was unaware of how special this was. A lot of kids, you got to remember, you know, uh, were in the military. Uh, my, you know, childhood friends were over in Iraq yeah. uh, in the first uh, Gulf War. Um, yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of kids did in, in, in Alabama's. You know, you didn't go to college. And if, if you did, maybe you'd go to the University of Alabama if your dad went there or something, or if you were a a great athlete, but most kids, you know, joined the military or, or took blue collar jobs. While you were at college, like, t- t- share, t- tell me a little bit, like, your 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 interest in Latin America and all things Spanish. Like, where did it come from, and like, what drew you? What what, what caught? You? How did you catch the bug? <laughs> That's a great question. I, you know, I was seventeen. I graduated from high school. And I'll remember there was some foreign exchange students. If I understand, if I recall correctly, it was the first time the Rotary Club had ever allowed uh, foreign exchange students in, into mm. Alabama. 
And and by the way, they all had horrible experiences. I mean, some of them were, you know, injured, and it was just it was, it was not a place that was appropriate to send a Swedish kid who looked like John Lennon, you know, with a red bandana around his neck. It did, you know, it didn't it didn't fit. Um, and uh, so anyway, but I I befriended these kids, you know, and and, uh, uh, and I remember just being fascinated listening to speak a foreign language and. So that summer, uh, I graduated. I literally, you know, I, I was bussing tables and doing whatever it is I could to scrape together some cash. And my stepdad had some extra frequent flyer miles, and I, I was able to get together a, enough money to get a, a Eurail pass, oh, yeah. and a couple hundred dollars in a, in a belt and a guitar. Um, and <laughs> I, you know, I flew to Oslo, which is where I, I met my my family. My, I'm pretty right. close to the bone. My great-grandfather immigrated when he was a young man from this little village. And so if you can imagine, I mean, <laughs> even my grandfather, my father, none of my aunts and uncles, no, none of them had ever been back to Alabama. Like a lot of Americans, I mean, I wasn't even really clear what Le Damel, you know, was. Um, that it was literally the name of a village and that they'd anglicized our last name. And, you know, it's, it's, this, is, this is what it is to be an American. You're, you're kind of... Uh, pushed into this this new immigrant world, you're you're severed from the past. You you, you know, uh, everyone's anglicized, and you know the only way you know how to measure yourself in the world is is by you know your financial status and your your career and things like that. So it was a huge experience, and so I you know I it, so did, I, did you have any like how did you find like did you still have a relationship with with the relatives? You knew who they were. No, just, no, no, I just. Uh, I had <laughs> curiosity. Well, I, I had an old great aunt who, who lived 100 years old um, and still remembered, you know, the, the, the immigrant generation. Yeah. And, you know, she was a farmer in Montana. I mean, literally <laughs> a Norwegian <laughs> farmer, buckwheat farmer in Montana. And, you know, I asked her, uh, did we still have family? And so, you know, again, there was no phones. And I wrote a letter to... The family, and sure enough, I mean, I just dropped down in an airport in Oslo and got on a bus, and it took me like 14 hours to get there, and started knocking around doors in the village, no way. you know, asking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so it was, it was, uh, it was incredible because it gave me this huge sensing that oh my God, something happened before us. Um, and it was really shocking to to go to this environment, see these kids that look like me. Um, <laughs> so who did you, you know, meet there? I mean, my third cousins. You know, that we had the same. Uh, our great grandparents were siblings, and and so it was a very large family. There were there were dairy farmers, and the dairy farm is still active. And uh, the you know the three middle the three middle boys were shipped off. There was a famine. They were desperately poor. Uh, Norway wasn't a petrostate back then. <laughs> now it's like we want our passports back, you know? <laughs> so get, get a piece of that trillion-dollar sovereign wealth fund for four million citizens. But, yeah, it was great. So I took a train, of course, all through Europe, and in order to not have to pay for hostels or whatever, I slept on the train. And that meant I crisscrossed Europe, you know, half a dozen times over that summer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and that, of course, that gave me the bug, and, and I got to see Spain, and, you know, I was really impressed with that, and I thought, well, I would love to come back here one day, and, wow. and I, I did my junior year. Wow. And so, okay. <laughs> um, so now, now, so 
All right. So that, 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 take me back to, to the the start of your career, going into finance and sales. Like it, it sounds the way you say it is like that was kind of what you had to do at the time. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and interestingly, I you know I I was part of a group called the Center for International Studies and Liberal Arts at Connecticut College, and they gave you a grant the summer of your junior year to study anywhere. Do anything you want. Any internship you could find, you had to come back and write a thesis for it. It was a, you know, a prestigious academic group, and I read the Economist magazine that Christmas section that year of that would have been Christmas of '91, and they reviewed a think tank in Peru that they said was the world's most influential think tank. I thought, well, what's the? I was thinking the Heritage Foundation or Brook Institution or something, you know, uh, Peru. So I write this guy Hernando de Soto a letter. Okay. Um, you know, I thought this would be a lot more interesting than you know studying European Monetary Union. And I said, you know, can I come down? And he he writes me back. He says yes. So I get on a flight and I go down to to Peru. What I didn't know is they were in the middle of a huge civil conflict, um, which you know that ended my my uh, uh, internship there. I was in a, a, a horrible bombing. Um, yeah. My understanding was there was only two of us that survived it. Um, the, the director, which I, he had bodyguards, you know, and, and, me, and me. So here, if you can imagine, you're in this combat zone, and then you're, uh, you survive it, and then, bam, you're in, back in Alabama, eating Doritos, watching The Price is Right, and, you know, a week later, you're at Connecticut College for your last year undergrad. So, you know, it was like uh, just a, a lot had happened by the time I had, you know, moved to New York, and that was like that's where I started in banking. So, so but but so you were working for Hernando de Soto in Peru. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was and, an intern. Wow. Okay. And yeah. at, but at the time he wasn't as famous as he as he became. Oh, he was. He was. Yeah. 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 yeah he was. He had written the the other path. Yeah. Um, and indeed, you know, he was really very influential. He was basically a politician. The the, yeah. the reason why it was so influential, the think tank, was because. Fujimori had closed down the Congress, and basically it was a policy printing center. They just enacted the policies. And this is why the Shining Path, you know, wanted to take that place out. They they parked a Volkswagen bus with two tons of dynamite mixed with ammonium nitrate in front of the place after killing all the guards out front. And and then they came in, they murdered everyone who was still alive. And it was uh, just really bad luck. I, I just was studying in the Late in the library that night, I had lost track of time. There was a curfew. You were not supposed to be out after dark. and It was just really bad luck. But uh, that was a huge experience. And it's one that really only I've begun to talk about, like, like this year. No <laughs> you know, you just, you don't, I, I really, this is why I understand the, this experience of all these folks who have been out in theaters of conflict or, or, or experienced some sort of, you know, uh, Something like that. You, you just you just shut it down. You don't ever talk about it again. Um, it's, it's 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 really fascinating that you, you only started thinking about it and talking about it so recently. Oh, I've been thinking I, about it for thirty years, but I just never talked about it. And, and now that so so how, how do you how did it affect you? Like did did it? I mean, besides of course the the, the trauma and all of that, but like I, I guess it must have shaped your. I don't know. Did it, did it fuel a sense of uh, wanting to? Uh, how, how do you? How did it affect you? 
Well, you know, again, it was only one night, but, uh, you know, it, first of all, I mean, it was, uh, you were watching poor indigenous kids kill poor indigenous kids. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, it's just one was on, we had, you know, 38s and were untrained and the security guards on the other side were children. Uh, I mean, everyone was a child, including me which is something people don't talk a lot about, about the reality of these kind of conflicts. Is they're, yeah. they're children's wars, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, that was just, of course, you know, and you can imagine what the blast did, and then, of course, what happened, the mayhem after that. There was nothing glamorous or glorious about this yeah. kind of stuff yeah. at all. It was just you're, you're scratching to stay alive, and, and it's, it's horrible. Um, and, you know, the of course, I went through all the classic... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, there's mm. no doubt about that when I look back on it all. Yeah. Mm. But um, it also, I think, uh, affected me a lot. I never saw war or uh, violence the same after that. And yeah. it, it, it had a huge impact on how I felt about those things. You know, I mean, I, I you know, you read Kurt Vonnegut or something, and, you, you know, this is people who have been in these things have a very different perspectives about it than than what you see on tv or you know glamorizing this kind of stuff it's it's nothing glamorous at all about it but yeah it had a huge impact on me and i think it also allowed me to sort of as a, as a poet as a writer you know um explore the corners of your heart you know it's uh, all these big diverse uh, experiences and emotions you know some people push uh into more corners than others you know um and and yeah, it's 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 uh, it gave me a whole different sensing of 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 of, of life and death too. Yeah, you know, which is something a twenty year old is, is usually not thinking about. Yeah, because this theme of war, violence, uh, the, the ugly side of it, cop, uh, pops up or appears or emerges a lot in the the poems that you that you write. It's this kind of sure almost out yeah. Of, in the context of a beach and something, it's not the, the image of war appears in the middle of a, something beautiful. It, it feels like, to me, like reading. Yeah, it's, well, it's, you know, again, this is a bigger part of the American experience than I think a lot of people acknowledge. Um, like both of my grandparents were Navy men in the Pacific. And, you know, you just, you know, you look at the, your little child and you look at the USS Northampton's, you know, picture on the wall and you're just like, wait a minute. And, you know, your uncles are paratroopers in Korea and this and that. And then there's the Vietnam generation. And then, you know, I even remember, a, a, you know, a, a young cousin coming back to uh, Portugal in 2002 after serving in Iraq. And it's just like now we've got 20 years of, of, of you know, these two conflicts. Yeah. Millions of, of young people have been cycled through these, these theaters. And, I mean, it's just, it's like it never... It's it's a, such a big part of of the American experience, um, especially when you're just you know provincial uh, mm, yeah. folks out in the out in the in the provinces of the country, you know, huh. and uh, and then of course you know this I mean just gun violence too. I mean it's it's in the news a lot now because there's a lot of particularly crazy things going on. But you know people were killed in hunting accidents and cleaning their weapon and you know accidents and just stuff all the time this is not new to the american experience guns and violence it's a, yeah. it's an old theme <laughs> it's been around just yeah. like racism isn't either you know these are these have always been huge parts of 
of the yeah, American it's, experience. Because I, I grew up in Switzerland where, where guns are or were maybe a bit less so now a big part of the culture, but the, the culture is much more it, it, like marksmanship, sportsmanship is why people have guns, not for protection. But in the, in the US, what struck me is the, the, the connection with guns is about safeguarding your 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 lands your family and and fighting like protecting you against uh, what's beyond your fence that is hostile like there's this absolutely uh, yeah that's like whoa <laughs> for me it was yeah it's a yeah. totally different uh, relationship with the weapon um and you know i mean i wrote that that poem for example it's it's almost comical you know it's like old aunt mildred you know yeah, it's got a you know a, a thirty eight in her in her glove box. You know, I mean, it's it's just everybody had a gun. <laughs> so maybe going back to your 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 start of your young career in in finance and sales, like why did you go that direction? What was going on? Oh, you know, there was a recession in ninety two. Um, you know, Clinton had gotten in power, and I don't know if you remember, there was a you know kind of a recession. A lot of these entry management training. Programs and insurance companies, and you know, consulting com- management consulting companies, and, and banks, and financial institutions were were closing. And I, you know, again, I, I kind of got lucky. I, you know, I had participated in a um, Big Brothers Big Sisters of America um, while I was at Connecticut College, and um, you know, uh, the woman at the Federal Reserve Bank uh, who interviewed me was on the national board of Big Brothers Big Sisters. She asked me about that and then hired me. Uh, it was the only job offer I got. Yeah, yeah. And I spent that entire year commuting to job fairs to Austin and, and yeah. New York. Um, so I took it, uh, got a little apartment in Brooklyn, and then suddenly I you know, got a call from Chase Manhattan. I had sent a resume and someone pulled it up and it was a much more exciting job. I was gonna work in the International Private Bank um, yeah. and you know, auditing uh, banks at the Fed was my nightmare. I was not very good at it either. And so, you know, all of a sudden, and, you know, Chase, Chase and Chemical Bank merged, and, you know, then Chemical and, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Manufacturers Handlers Trust and then and Chemical merged, and, you know, all this brought a lot of opportunity, you know. Mm-hmm. So suddenly I was, you know, down in Brazil representing the private bank of Credit Lyonnais. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, that. That was huge experience for such a young professional to have so much responsibility and you know freedom to make choices about what you did with your time and and, uh, and of course you know the pressure of matrix and all the metrics. I mean you, you know it was high pressure work, but yeah. within a couple of years, I mean I I was you know by 25 I was already a weathered professional. Yeah. yeah. And you know and that's when I just thought, well wait a minute, you know I want to go out and start my own business, and so. That's when my brother and I, and uh, and our father started up a, a business back in Phoenix. Yeah, and um, you know it's uh, which really is a, you know an advisory on is estate and asset protection planning and related banking strategies, and that's what I do to this day. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm an advisor. You still had this huge interest in Latin America, and then at some point you got involved in charity. Right. How, how did that all like? How did that all happen? Well, you know, we just had a lot of success very quickly. Um, probably too much too quickly, to be honest. I don't think I was mature enough to cope with it. Um, but, uh, you know, my first thought was, you know, since our business model has had a lot of annuitized income, 
I felt like we were in a secure enough position to give back, you know. And, um, you know, I also thought, well, let's professionalize the business uh, management, which, which was also, you know, not appropriate. You need to run your own business. My brother, thank God, understood that. But I thought, well, let's professionalize it and start up a foundation and start, you know, giving money away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, because, you know, this is kind of the value system that I, you know, yeah. Yeah. I felt I, you know, re- I wanted to, to do. So, you know, that was, we started up operations in about five countries in Africa, West Africa and in Haiti. Um, we began with, you know, re- remodeling uh, uh building schools and, you know, fixing wells. And we had a small girls' home in Sierra Leone. And then we eventually got more into um, uh, teacher training yeah. because it was just so difficult to manage the capital in these communities. I mean, I always joke, you know, giving money away is harder than making it. Um, it's just really difficult to implement the systems. So you had this this desire to, 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 to give back and set something up. How did you uh, choose, in a way which direction you took and, and why also international as opposed to, I don't know. Uh, well, we, we looked at everything, to be honest. I mean, I knew we wanted to do something charitable. And, you know, I just did a year, I would say a year of really intense research. I mean, I interviewed everybody who would talk to me that was in wow. the business yeah. of international trade and development. Yeah. Yeah. I even got a personal meeting with Carol Bellamy, who was the chief of UNICEF at the time. Oh, wow. yeah. And oh, yeah. she was the one who really convinced me that education, girls' education, was was yeah. the main thing that we should do. That was we all know that now, but you know, 22 years ago, it was still yeah, it was not, yeah. kind of a new idea. Um, and I think the, probably the biggest intervention we did was we wrote a three-year grant to CAMFED, which at the time was not the big charity it is now. Um, to put 16,000 girls in northern Ghana through through elementary school. Uh, it, was a, it was a big grant, and um, that was, you know, I think probably the, the best intervention other than the girls' home, which to this day we still support. The charity, we closed it down in about 2009 after the, the financial crash. But we had our run. We had a good run of about a decade. You, you did some 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 really interesting th- things there. So so for the, for the, the gir- girls' training, so... What, what was preventing girls from getting access to education in this in this case? Was Pure it, poverty. I mean, yeah. you know. So, so even the basic fees to, to attend school. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's not there's not a public system. And it was, I mean, the, the poverty, and I'm sure to this day it's probably still that way. I haven't been back to, you know, the border of Burkina Faso and Nagarlaru, mm-hmm. you know, Ghana in, since the, for 20 years. But, I mean, the poverty was so intense. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, you would you just you wouldn't believe it unless you saw it. I mean, it was really really intense. You said that a lot of the the, the challenge was to actually uh, deliver actual services there. Given, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess no infrastructure, the the, the, the hard, difficulty of it's not so much about the funding; it's more about the, how how do you operationalize things on the ground, right? Right. I mean, if you had all the money in the world, you would still you couldn't give it away quickly unless unless you got capacity by writing grants to people who have capacity, which is yeah. what a lot of the foundations and really wealthy organizations, they, don't, they would never have the capacity to build operations. And so, you know, I learned a lot from CAMFED. I mean, they set up these community development committees and, mm-hmm. you know, it's real hands-on. I mean, you have to build organically the capacity to safely deliver the money uh, or the service even. Um, and it was just amazing how difficult it was. I mean, 
you know, I mean, there were times when I thought we did more damage than good. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I just thought, you know, this is, uh, I've, I'm done. Is, is there an instance that comes to mind where you, you had some Yes, doubts? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, someone got control of, a, of one of the committee, you know, community. I mean, there's a, someone representing the, yeah, yeah. the traditional leadership, someone representing the political, somebody representing the students, someone representing the mothers. You know, you, you know there was uh, checks and balances to assure that the money... But, you know, sometimes someone gets control of it, like any kind of political fight, and all of a sudden, you know... I don't know. They marry four more prepubescent girls, you know, with the money, and yeah. so it's you know. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but sometimes things that were just you know, you try to bring support and in, in, into an environment where that money is so much more than anyone yeah. has that it's tempting for someone yeah. to yeah. be corrupt and take it and do something else with it with their own agenda. So it was, you know, it was really challenging, which is why we also ended up at the end in teacher training because it was a service. You can't yeah. steal a service. Yeah, yeah. I watched some of your, uh, there's a couple of videos of the teacher's training. I thought that was, that was really fascinating. But it sounds oh, like, yes. yeah, it sounds like really painstaking work. On, in the video oh, I saw there's like an elderly, uh, uh, I, I believe, American couple that I guess is providing some guidance. But it's all, uh, I, the, the, what I understood is tr- tr- trying to change the approach that the teachers use uh, when exactly. they educate kids so that it's more uh, around c- conceptual thinking, understanding what they're doing as opposed to just uh, memorizing. Um, exactly. R- rote. You know, r- the rote yeah. was the technique yeah. that, that which w- these children were masters of. I mean, yeah. they were like high-powered computers. I mean, they, you show them something for five seconds and they re- memorized yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but they didn't get that sort of hypothetical thinking skill. Um which you know uh, even like ba- basic grammar so there's a grammar a french grammar lesson like where you have to realize okay what's the verb subject why is like that so the, that sounded exactly. uh, a bit for, uh, for uh, a bit uh, unfamiliar to the the teachers in the room it, yeah i mean it was to, to sit inside these teacher training it was overwhelming just to go wow the amount of work and follow up and you can't just do it once either it has to be yeah. n- never ending like managing any any business process it's no yeah. different the systems can never they can never stop yeah it's yeah. a huge responsibility to to take it upon yourself um, to enter into these environments and decide you're going to make a change it's and i think a lot of um, organizations that do it are very naive uh, yeah. or arrogant you know, yeah. they, they think they're going to go in and change everything, and often they don't. Sometimes they make it worse. And, and I guess you had to partner with uh, local authorities or something because you were changing the curriculum, I guess. Uh, usually curriculum is quite tightly controlled by, by uh, somebody who, like, uh, yeah, or no. <laughs> yeah, we weren't there. changing the curriculum. We were just changing the way that the, way, the, the teachers way this, uh, were taught yeah. to teach it. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a more qualitative ed- process. Yeah. But yeah, incredible experiences, and I'm so glad. Also, we just got to travel all over the place, and you know, being in Sierra Leone, for example, right after the war, there was an incredible experience. I, you know, I remember renting a Russian helicopter to, um, you know, an old troop uh, helicopter from Afghanistan that was used to get people from the airport to, to town. And we had a we we were going to go to an inauguration of a of a school up in Makari Village, you know, about an hour, forty five minute helicopter ride north. It'd take you all day to drive there, 
And, you know, there was gun checkpoints, and it was dangerous. It wasn't, uh, you know, easy to travel in the country at that time. And so, I mean, if you can just imagine, you know, dropping down in a Russian <laughs> troop copter <laughs> with, you know, some donors and the teacher training team, and, and you know, there's literally 500 children dressed in traditional uh, garb dancing. And, um, you know, these are the things I always say to I me. Mean, if I'm... 95 years old have Alzheimer's. I won't forget that. <laughs> Man, you must have seen a hell of a lot from, from uh, West African, like complete, uh, as you said, like the, the, the energy and the happiness of, of, uh, of the kids mixed with total dysfunctional societies, uh, no governance, war. I mean, that, that's like, it's not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, well, you know, ignorance is bliss. I mean, you know, I just threw myself into it. You got to remember, I was still relatively young, you know, not the the jaded old guy I am now. You know, I was 30 (laughs) years old and full of all kinds of, you know, ideological passion. Um, And, you know, it was, it was, I didn't know better. So I just threw myself in the middle of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have been, you know, driving out in the in the in the middle of nowhere in Sierra Leone with you know the British had just left and there was 40,000 UN troops on the ground and here I am you know out there <laughs> just you know walk knocking on doors in rural elementary schools <laughs> hey I th- you know, can we bring some teacher training to you <laughs> You 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 refer to yourself as the jaded old man now, which I I, I don't recognize at all. But I guess oh, it, I'm it just didn't, joking. But you know, <laughs> it didn't I mean, make you, you jaded you know, though. This this no, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm still the idealist. I'm just not. You know, um, I I mean, of course, you become a lot more worldly, and you realize, wow, things <laughs> take time, and you have to be cautious. And you know, when I read the paper, I I see the gray lines behind it now. Um, you know. I think a lot of the things that we were taught in school, for example, even somewhere as a night in this Canadian college, were not true. Uh, they weren't mm-hmm. accurate reflections of, of the reality of the way the world works. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, there's this, you know, theater almost, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, and then there's a reality, you know. So when you get a lot more sophisticated, experienced, and, and, uh, and critical-minded, you know, a bit skeptical, um, I, I'll never be jaded. You know, I'm just too much of a big-hearted guy. But, you know, you definitely get a lot more cautious about what you assume is, is, is what you're saying. So I don't want to tease you too much, but um, uh, how, how about, like, what got you into into your, into your politics, actually? Like, did that did that make you jaded? Like, you know, well, <laughs> you know, that was just an entrepreneurial endeavor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you ran know, for Congress had, in yeah, I as a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, I had some time. And, uh, you know, we had donated a little money to Janet Napolitano, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yep. who was the governor of yep. Arizona at the time. You know, and since we were in Arizona business and we were just, you know, participating, she, we, we thought she was doing a good job in Arizona. And, and you know, I, I got to meet her and know her a little bit. And she, she, she pitched me on the idea of running for Congress up in the first district in uh, Arizona, mm. you know, which is the Navajo Nation is there. And yeah. this is the area where my father's, you know, uncle and their family is from. And so, you know, we had, I had some, I, I took a look at it. And, and then I realized this is, this is 
I'm not ready for this. And so, but of course, you know, I kind of got the bug. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was down in Mexico at the time. And uh, I thought, gosh, you know, and, and here Barack Obama was coming along. And I thought this was kind of exciting. Um, I believed from the beginning that he could win. No one else did at the time. It was mm, just assumed yeah. that Clinton would win the nomination. And I had met him um, just accidentally at an airport. Uh, we were on the same flight to, um, he was still a young senator uh, to, to Chicago. And, and so I just thought, you know, I, I, think he, I think this might be an exciting time. And I... You had a chance to speak to him, just to, yeah, I did. Yeah. Did and, you want to share uh, how, how was the life? Well, he, you know, he he, I you know, he was so diplomatic about it. But the, you know, I I I told him I wanted to go down to Alabama's first congressional district and run as a, as a, as a Democrat. And I, I don't know how he said it, but it was basically like, well, you're crazy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I can't remember exactly what what it was. Maybe it was just a look, but. Um, <laughs> You know, it was a very naive uh, effort. Um, I didn't even make it to, to, the, to the election. But I, what I did get to do was about a year and a half of full-time campaigning. Yeah. And, and meeting uh, a whole just, bunch of people, yeah? Oh, my gosh. It was the most incredible experience. I mean, it was, the re again, the reality of all of that is so much different than the imagery. Um, you know, first of all, going back to Congress and meeting the, the, the leadership of the party and... Um, sitting in on committee meetings and understanding, you know, talking to a few Congress people and realizing, oh, wait a minute, this is a tightly controlled um, <laughs> environment. I mean, they're going to tell you what committee you're on. They're going to tell you where you're going to run. You know, it, it was not like a, some sort of citizen's effort where you're going to go out and help the people, you know. That was new to you. Uh, I, I just didn't understand that, you know, uh, it was totally, completely controlled. I mean, and if you think about, there's 537 publicly elected officials representing the world's largest economy. I mean, it's only 435 Congress people, 100 senators, the president, the vice president. That's it. That's what the Constitution allows to run this, you know, incredible economy and, and military power. Um, so, you know, you can't just let that kind of power be run by, you know, whoever wants to uh, file papers and, and scream all night long on C-SPAN, you know. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, the reality is, is I never had a chance, but I did have a, a, a very creative idea, which was since nobody votes in that district and the, the real uh, political battle there was always the, the, the Republican Party primary. And I, I just had this crazy idea that, well, if I go down there and if I can enfranchise 20,000 votes, it's a dead heat. Hmm. And yeah. then if I, can, if I can have the luck in a district that had 38% black folks... Um, and Barack Obama gets on the ticket, well, then maybe I'll just ride my coat, his coattails in. And, you know, that was, uh, it, it wasn't crazy, yeah, you know. Yeah. It was highly unlikely. And, um, but, you know, there were other factors that I didn't consider, mm -hmm. which is that it, 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 there's no way it was that was going to happen no matter what happened. You, you did have a platform which was uh, qu quite uh, new at the time, I guess, uh, really fighting against uh, lobby money, like special interests and all of that. Yeah, I just said I'm not going to take any of it. If yeah. you know individuals want to write me a check for 20 bucks, uh, I was the first person in the state of Alabama to use YouTube. Okay, well. I hired some kid to, yeah, just follow me everywhere. And, you know, when you walk into housing projects in Pritchard and start knocking on doors and someone's got a camera up behind you, I mean, it was really radical stuff at the time. I said whatever I wanted. Um, you know, I didn't care. And, um, 
you know, I, I just, I didn't have a, a, a campaign manager. I didn't have a pollster. I didn't have a media consultant. That's where you need all the money for it. You need, yeah, you know, yeah. four million bucks just to hire these. You pay for the media campaign. So when you're trying to use YouTube and you're saying whatever you want, and I was, of course, very anti-war, which was yeah. not a popular position in southern Alabama yeah. in, you know, in 2006. Um, but, you know, again, this has a lot to do with what I saw in Peru, you know. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, touring prisons and going into black churches on Sunday and hollering and screaming and, you know, uh, going to poll workers meetings and, you know, watching old probate judges get drunk and, you know, everyone's a Truman Democrat. And I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up, you know. It was amazing. I mean, getting kicked out of Walmart and, you know, they don't allow you to campaign in front of their, or in their parking lots or... The, you know, the mall cop kicking, kicking you out. I'm like, I'm running for United States House of Representatives. I can't, I'm not allowed to shake hands in a, a parking lot at, at Walmart, you know? So, I mean, it was just, it was a fantastic experience. And I think the part that moved me the most were the people I met. Yeah. And, uh, and again, you know, the poverty, uh, yeah. the amount of, of social marginalization uh, black, white folk, everybody, uh, immigrants. Because these I mean, are conversations you know, where where people do see you as their only chance of having, you know, of their voice being carried potentially. Is that, is that not even? I mean, a more realistic portrayal of it is, you know, you you you're canvassing in a very rural area in Monroe County, yeah, and you're knocking on a door, and someone opens the door, and you know, hi, I'm Ben Laden, I'm running for U.S. Congress. You know, they don't even know what that is, who <laughs> well, you are, why you're there. Yeah. And, um, you know, and all of a sudden you're trying, to, they bring the mother out, and then the second generation comes out, out, and then the third generation comes out from out back. And, you know, and they're all like, who, who are you? Yeah. They think you're someone important. They don't know what it is. And, you know, you're literally pulling out a, a you know, you, you're, you're saying, you know, the House of Representatives, you know, Congress. No idea what you're talking about. The president of the United States, George Bush. Oh, you know, maybe something rings a bell. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden someone screams out, you know, Grandma, the congressman is here. And I'm trying to explain I'm not the congressman. I'm running for congressman. And, you know, then all of a sudden the entire family piles together and someone pulls a Polaroid out. They take a picture and send you off. And they met the congressman. I mean, you know. It was stuff like that, that you just, you know, the, the prison tour freaked me out. Um, you know, just the power of, of being brought to tears on Sundays in, in black churches, just listening to people sing. Yeah. Um, you know, these are things that, again, you know, dropping down in, in the rural Sierra Leone in a Russian helicopter, I'll never forget. But, you know, uh, being on a pulpit in a black, black church and in front of 2,000 people in rural Alabama. I'll never forget that either. You visited prisons as well. They moved. That was also, you mentioned that was also tough. Uh, devastating. I mean, I always say I kind of walked in thinking I was some sort of center, you know, right Democrat, and, you know, socially liberal, but uh, fiscally bit, conservative. Yeah. And, you know, I... I you, you just I saw, you see so much injustice um, and tragedy um, that uh, it's just you can't look at it and not be moved. I mean, it was yeah. just devastating. Again, a lot of these things are beginning to be talked about yeah. now, but at the time they were not. Yeah, 
as as in people who've been in gangs uh, trapped into a cycle not even Uh, a girl who's you know 18 and her boyfriend put some marijuana in her car that you know passed the legal limit and now you know she's in a system that she can't get out of and then you know i mean this kind of stuff you know just petty petty crime uh, small drugs you know people dealing um getting caught into it you know the criminal justice system is just you know this this uh, door it's a revolving door and um you know and and a lot of the folks that get in it can't get out the least ones that they're the last ones that should be there you know Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Really tragedies, you know. And of course, when you meet the families and you find out the real story, the backstory, and um, devastating. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, your family, actually, because you got you got a big family, um, and you've uh, taken them with you to different places, different countries. Um, you you. You spent time in Argentina with uh, with your family. Um, yeah, how, how can you share a little bit how it was like? Yeah, I mean, you know, now I've spent most of my adult life outside of the United States. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, my wife is Senegalese. Of course, our kids are mixed. They look more African than they look Norwegian, um, and. You know, I just didn't want to raise them in the United States. And thank God I'm able to work remotely. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we spent several years in, in well, I mean, I have, we have five children. Uh, we spent several years in Mexico, six years in Buenos Aires. Six months of those we spent in Salt up in the north, uh, near the border with Bolivia. Um, traveled all over, you know. I mean, just because we were living in Argentina, we were also traveling a lot to Brazil and Uruguay. Right. And, right all over Argentina. Um, you know, we lived in, in Spain and Portugal um, and always, you know, putting them in international schools and and uh, picking kind of environments that were neutral. Of course, we go back to Senegal uh, and our children are real familiar with their family in Senegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a... Interracial, international, interfaith, inter everything, uh, interculture, <laughs> marriage, family. Uh, you know, I I always say I just got really lucky. I mean, you know, when you're young and we we just celebrated our twentieth wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. and, oh yeah, yeah. You know, she's just she's everything. I mean, and she's just uh, been incredible. And you know, we were always in in neutral environments. It wasn't my country. It wasn't hers. And so we had to make our way, and it, it really created children that were very international. And, and they don't have any of this, um, you know, baggage about understanding their racial identity or, or needing to stand behind know, a flag. Or dad's anything. a Lutheran and mom's a Muslim, yeah. or dad's white and mom's black. None of this stuff matters in their worldview. They know they're loved, and uh, they're curious about the world, and they're interested in traveling, and they have all kinds of diverse interests and. You know, they're mus- musically talented and athletic, and, and we've just created our own world. Yeah, uh, yeah. But we were also very careful about the worlds we picked, too. You, it sounds like you made these decisions together as well. Like, uh, Of course, it- yeah. 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 I mean, I remember, you know, when I decided, you know, let, let's, let's get out of Mexico. It was getting violent. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, the period when we were in GMAP. I was in GMAP 2006 right. yeah. and seven. Yeah. The whole thing with the campaign was falling apart. And uh, I said, okay, let's make a clean break. Um, and I said, honey, I got three ideas. Um, one is uh, Buenos Aires, because I had worked there yeah. Uh, yeah. as a young banker. The other one was Georgia. I mean, like Chibilsi, like the okay. country Georgia. <laughs> How on earth did you come and up with that? <laughs> just, you know, I was just looking for places where, you know, the dollar was strong and you could live really well and put the kids <laughs> to, you know, private schools for for cheap and, and you know, have domestic help, which is a big deal. Yeah. It's allowed us to have the freedom to travel and, um, you know, it's a big family. And, uh, uh, and then I, there was one of our classmates was a deputy foreign minister of Indonesia. And he was kind of a buddy, you know, we would hang out. Uh, in the residencies, and uh, and we also had one of our events during a residency at the uh, Indonesian embassy down in D.C. And right. I got a chance to sit at a table with a lot of Indonesians, and you know, he kind of pitched me on, you know, I can help you, I can help you out, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, if you're looking at moving, why don't you move to Jakarta? And I mean, I really considered it. I thought, well, you know, I've <laughs> never lived in Asia, but my wife just said, you know what, uh, I'll pick. Argentina. <laughs> and, and, so that's how yeah. that happened. Right. And off, off you went. And you, 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 uh, there was no job for you there, right? Well, no, I've always, you know, worked remotely. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I give advice on the phone, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, so I've always been able to work remotely. Yeah. Thank God. I mean, I'm really <laughs> grateful for it. And, and thank God my, you know, my brother, has taken the responsibility to be the man on the ground and run the business. And, you know, I'm really grateful because if, if I hadn't had my brother and my dad, you know, my dad's in his late eighties now, if I hadn't had my brother to, to, uh, you know, hold the fort down and manage the operational side and all that, you know, of course he's the managing right yeah. person and, you know, the, the main stakeholder, but I still get to work and I'm grateful for it, you know? Right. Is that something I forgot to ask you about your your family? Actually, one of your kids uh, is really big into into football. Like he's really yeah. very, very very like. How did you how did you get into that? Like you know, it's so well. Of course, he was in Argentina as a child, and right. you know, yeah, everyone's yeah. a fanatic there. I mean, <laughs> I use that word with a capital F. I mean, that is a country of football fanatics, and uh, and so you know, he was a little footballer, and he's a, he's just naturally athletic. Right. And um, so it was never our agenda because I don't even know anything. I don't know anything about football, and you know, I never was. We never pushed pushed that. But uh, when we moved to uh, Portugal again for the second time, this must have been 2014. So he was, you know, what six or something. He went and joined a club here, um, and I, I think the coaches saw this two meter, you know, six six guy. And they're like, well, you're going to be big. So let's make him a keeper. And uh, so now he's, you know, he's 14 and he's made it into one of the most prestigious youth academies in the world, the sporting right. academy where wow. yeah. Ronaldo went. Wow. And so you have the, the stadium here in the city, but across the river in Alcacete, there's this massive campus. Um, you know, there's like 12 pitches and a hospital and a, you know, physiotherapy center. And I mean, it's, it's where the first squad plays. Yeah. It's where the, wow. the you yeah. know, so uh, of course each year has a class, 
you know, yeah. it's a very elite group of athletes. You know, there may be 40 kids, you know, for their per class. There's two teams per class. And so, you know, yeah, the, the joke is he's, 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 he's going to be big like a Norwegian and fast like an African puma is what they say. So good, <laughs> cool. good, good, awesome. good qualities for a keeper. <laughs> oh, wow. Awesome. That, that's, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, um, but it's a, it's a lifestyle. I mean, he's already basically living the life of a professional baller. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he comes home early, leaves school early. He's gone till 10 o'clock at night. The only time I see him is, is at breakfast time. I'm the one who wakes him up and makes his breakfast. And um, it's, a, it's unbelievable that at this age, I mean, he's already been traveling all over the place. You know, they travel. I mean, they go and play these big tournaments all over Europe. And if COVID hadn't come, I mean, he would have gone to, to Japan. You know, they go down to South America, and they're they're basically professionals. Yeah, uh, they yeah, have the yeah. same training regimes, everything. They're just still kids. But if that industry doesn't train you like a professional, by the time they need you to be a professional, you can't just yeah. go yeah. into the marketplace. You need to already be, you know, at that level. So it's it's been fascinating as a family for us to deal with that because it's not a normal childhood. Yeah, yeah, and it's been fascinating to see the unconditional commitment, yeah, and the and the clarity. I mean, he never complains. He's totally, completely, unconditionally committed, and he has no doubts. And it's 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 inspiring for for the rest of us just to see that kind of force of 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 certainty. Um, yeah, yeah, it is amazing. It's it's amazing. I'm still blown away by it every day. You know, I keep thinking one day, God, maybe he's going to come home and be like, Dad, I want to be a normal kid, you know, ride my bike around the neighborhood and go to birthday parties. And, you know, it's just not what he wants. He has what he wants and he knows it. He has the talent <laughs> and, the, and the insane focus. <laughs> yes. And, and it's, but it's, it's long hours, huge yeah. commitment. Yeah. Wow. And just training, training, training over and over and over. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wanted to go back to what we touched a little bit around po- poetry, uh, and um, I, I read I read all of, all of the, the the poems that that Christian shared with me actually, and there's there's one that that uh, struck with stuck with me is the one that Al Al Shuara, um, uh-huh. and I was trying to figure out like I I just couldn't imagine like what, what were you thinking of like what's going like do you mind kind of sharing a little bit. Um, how, how that yes, came about, how that came about, and kind of maybe, and maybe in general, even like, how, how do you, how do you write? Is it, is it like uh, a burst of inspiration? Is it, is it a painful birth? Is it, <laughs> how, or is it all different? Yeah, I mean, poetry for me came I, as a total, complete surprise. Um, I, I had no. <laughs> uh, idea that I would ever do this and um, I just one day started writing this was 20 years ago and I've never quit I write with great discipline Um, and since in the evenings is when I work because I call the United States yeah so in the mornings I exercise in the afternoons I write and then in the evening I work Um, I mean you know late afternoon or evening so I get to have my lunch and write every day Um, and so you know for me poetry is really a meditation it's um, as cliched as it is to say I write because I must, but I write because I must. I mean, it's a, a way for me to stop and you know literally smell the roses and uh, search myself, check myself, observe what's around me, 
it's like a spidey sense, you know. You de- you develop this this gift for seeing what others don't see, and and therefore there's no there's nothing that you do not allow in, um, nothing. Uh, there's no sacred cows. There's no taboos. It, it's whatever it is that you're seeing is what you're seeing. Whatever you're feeling is what you're feeling, and then you're just trying to to interpret it for for the human beings, you know. And um, so I don't, you know. Uh, this book, this particular book, I mean, uh, the, the editors cut out 350 of the poems. I mean, there's only 238, and I wrote it in just over a year because we were in lockdown. And, uh, you know, um, I, so, gosh, I mean, I, you know, I, I have to read it right now to really place myself. But, yeah, it's, the, I mean, I'm looking at this poem right now, you know, I've hidden behind the shelter of love the only winning strategy that ever worked for me. You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's really a, a meditation. You know, I will watch the wars from the sky since I've already seen Satan's county seat. What struck me as well is there's also the, the, the sound of the words. Some of the, wor- some of the words, it sounds like it's the sound of the word that somehow is the meaning itself or, or it's uh, there's some, some, some love you have for the sound itself. Uh, it Absolutely. Like. Yeah. Because think about poetry this way. I mean, it's you're mixing and matching words and tone and meaning and meter. It's like creating, it's like inventing a language that doesn't exist. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and which is why it's so much more appealing to me than fiction, which I'm trying my hand at fiction now, but right. yeah. uh, because you, you have, there's no rules. Yeah. Uh, there's no grammar. There's, you are free to invent language, invent meaning with it. Um, and a poet is successful when they evoke something. You know, they either um, evoke, you know, delight or, or you know, or wonder or uh, they instruct that you're you're showing uh, the world something that they don't see, and yeah. often it's instructive, um, which is why it's almost like a, a meditation. Um, yeah. So you know, uh, you know, I mean, this poem, you know, I happily I, sit under yeah. ferns yeah. and smell honeysuckle and citrus, sip on thistle, and roll around the lawn daisies of my innocence and write to you. I mean, it's kind of like a, you, it almost invokes Walt Whitman, you know with leaves of grass in his hand and a straw hat, you know, laying in the yard, just taking it all in. <laughs> I love what you say about meditation because it's exactly that. You have to be aware of what you feel. Like there's, it creates uh, a, 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 it's you, it's you reading, if you like. It, it creates that, that kind of dimension. I like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, 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 for me, it's more than an art. I mean, it's an art but it's also a, it's a lifestyle. It's a it's a practice, which is why I do it every day, two yeah. to three hours a day. It's a practice that brings me right into the here and now. Um, you know, when I listen to a lot of the language about you know mindfulness, and, yeah. I mean, yeah. this has been my practice yeah. to achieve that. You know. Yeah. Wow, wow. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation, Benjamin. I've really realized we, we've already spoken more than an hour. And, okay. And, and I, I wanted to ask you if there's anything anything you wanted to say or share uh, yeah, to, to, our, to me or to our GMAP friends. Or <laughs> Yeah, no, nothing other than just, you know, I'm really grateful and I appreciate 
having a chance to, to share. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I really support the vision that uh, you guys have with this because, you know, um, it's an incredible network of people, you know, the Fletcher School, especially our GMAP group. And I, 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 I adore them all. I mean, I've never met a Jap GMAPer that I didn't think was an outstanding person. And anything we can do to keep communicating and keep yeah. our building our relationships and transparency and learning about each other and knowing who's where and you know that that there's there's someone on the ground in Lisbon if you ever need something yeah um you know it's it's an incredible effort and i think you guys are doing something great and i support it anything thanks. i think would be helpful count on me thanks 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 and i mean we've all of us have met each other have had conversations with each other very often we talk about more like our position or issues and things like that or I knew you were writing poetry but I never had really the time to, to hear you talk about it <laughs> so <Yeah>. I really <laughs> this is a bit why why Christian and I do this podcast is to give a bit of a kind of long form uninterrupted window into who you really who you who you are and, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad that, uh, that we can connect and uh, that, I, that I could because I, I, I always try to fill the blanks, I mean, we all do that, fill the blanks, like to try to complete the story of this band that I've seen now and then. And to, to hear you say it in your own words, it's like such, a, such an amazing, such an amazing privilege, actually. So th thank you so much for, for today. <laughs> thank you. And that's true for all of us, which is why, you know, the effort you're making is so important. It's really important work because we're, you know, it's, it's totally different to get that chance. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out.